Thank you for listening to the Austin Connection podcast. The Austin Connection is also a free newsletter and community on Substack. Check it out at austinconnection.substack.com. See you there. We linger over the feminine, beautiful form of Emma, but her mind Mm -hmm. is powerful intellectually, even as it is. She is a kind, intellectually brilliant person who answers to nobody. So where you might see it as she makes all these lists of books that she hasn't read in Australia, says she makes these beautiful lists and then she never reads them. That shows her power. She has the intellectual power to know what she should do. And she has the intellectual power and the judgment to say, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) George Justice is the editor of the Norton Critical Edition of Jane Austen's novel, Emma. That makes him an expert on this story, one of Austen's last, and the critical approaches to this story. He also just loves reading Austen. This is the Austin Connection. In this episode, Professor George Justice explores with us what's going on with Austin men, what's going on with Austin women, and how romance and power and authority get wrapped up with each other in the stories of Austin. I first met Professor Justice on the campus of the University of Missouri, where he served as dean of the graduate school. I met George and his wife, Austin scholar and author Devney Lozier, when I interviewed them at the local NPR affiliate station. Shout out to KBIA. They were talking with me about their first romantic meeting that started with an Austin argument. You can hear about that in our podcast with Devney Lozier. Now, Dr. Justice is a professor of English at Arizona State University, but in the process of that journey from Missouri to Arizona and from deendom back to the classroom, he has written commentaries, started a consultancy, written a book, How to Be a Dean, about life as an administrator in higher education. This journey also has involved a recovery from a serious illness, and George Justice says one of the things that got him through tough times has been reading Jane Austen and talking about Jane Austen with his students. A slight trigger warning is in order. There is a mention of sexual assault in this conversation about 20 minutes in and again at about 40 minutes. Here's an excerpt from our conversation with Professor George Justice. Let me just ask a little bit about your work, George. So you're obviously on English literature with a focus on women's writing and publishing, and you're writing a book on Jane Austen as a writer for Reaction Books, Critical Lives series. Um, You also write about higher education, very compellingly in the Chronicle of Higher Education. What in all of this are you most focused on and most passionate about, like right this minute? I can't say there is one thing because you're right. You just outlined the two major threads of my career as they've evolved. They both involve students, higher education, and places where I think I can contribute. But on the literature side, I have, it it feels like a miracle to me to be able to write about Jane Austen, to do research on Jane Austen, and especially to teach Jane Austen to undergraduate students, which I can't imagine a more enjoyable thing that I can pretend is productive for myself to do. But my most recently published book is How to Be a Dean from the Johns Hopkins University Press. So figuring out ways outside of administration to take my passion for higher education to make structural change. 
structural change that is also focused on the individual. And I think that's something that maybe I'll be able to bring back to a discussion of the novel as a genre and to teaching. I love thinking about what the novel is, but what I also love is what it means to individual human beings to change their lives and do great things in the world. George, you said something else about your illness, which um, you handled, it seemed so gracefully. In some ways, you were hit by this, like, turn the world upside down thing. Um, and then the world itself was turned upside down not too long later. Um, but you, you looked the picture of the health, and it's so great to see. And what what were you reading during this time? Did Jane, does, can Jane Austen get you through something like that? To me, it is. it was therapeutic. It was therapeutic not only to reread her books and to dig back in more generally to 18th century literature, but when I got, I was a little shaky, you know, I, was, I had been very sick. I had not from my own choice been thrust out of a job that I had spent 70 hours working on actively and the rest of my life kind of thinking about. Mm -hmm. um, when I got into the classroom and um, uh, started teaching Jane Austen again, and uh, it was absolutely life-changing. And I realized that is, that is what, that is what a life of an educator should be. And um, it was really one of the most, it was not my most effectively taught class because I was a bit rusty on some of the ways that I like to manage conversation and uh, the ebb and flow and work writing assignments and, and students had changed a bit since I had uh, last taught a class like that. But it was a life-changing class for me, not only because it, it marked kind of a re-entry in a different kind of career, but the students were so shockingly great to me to me, having these students in that class, loving Jane Austen and understanding things about Jane Austen I didn't understand was transformational in my understanding of what the rest of my life and rest of my career are going to be, which I can bring together a complete passion for bringing Jane Austen, not just to white upper middle class students at a private liberal arts college, but at Arizona State University, 120,000 students, it's now a Hispanic serving institution. It serves many, many first generation and low income students. And they love Jane Austen, not only with as much passion, but with at least as much insight as any students I've ever had anywhere else in my life. That class changed my life again when I had these students engaging with such depth and brilliance with the texts. That's amazing. And, and you know, I hear you, George. I, I think that's true. It is life-changing. And it, it, my this project arose also from just the difficult times, the winter of the pandemic, and just looking for something uh, to kind of lift you up and a community to engage in. And, and I do think like the literature, what you're describing, going into that classroom, sharing Austin, but then also having some brilliance shared back at you and just literally connecting around the stories. But you know, the Norton anthology that you edited and curated came out almost 20 years ago. And you may have not looked at it recently. I have. <laughs> but you you were talking about the power of Jane Austen then. So it's everything Emma, 
in the Austin connection right now. Mm. Um, Good for me. Yes. Well, what, is Emma your favorite novel of all time or Austin? Now, oh, difficult that question. is a, a very <laughs> difficult question. And I know because you talked to Devony and you had Devony on your, on your podcast a couple of weeks ago right. in yes. that now infamous conversation, I declared to Devony that Mansfield Park was my favorite novel. And um, I do love Mansfield Park with a depth and with a nostalgia because it was the first one that grabbed me. I mean, I, I was assigned in a class my first year of grad school. I didn't read it until then. And I started reading it. And it was just one of those amazing things that my life was changed. How could, how could I not have seen this or understood this in my past 22 years of life? I stayed up all night reading it and it was like an onslaught. If you ask me which, I don't know. Uh, yes, Emma's my favorite. I can't say because I love them all. Okay. The only one that's not my favorite is Northanger Abbey. Okay. The rest, all other five are my favorite. Well, I, I'm just curious. It seems to me like you were a, a more mature 22-year-old. What, what were you noticing? Why were you reading it up at late, late at night? I mean, it's suspenseful. At 22 years old, do you remember where you... Did you see the themes as a 22-year-old? I mean, you just said you had a good education. <laughs> I had kind of a weird education up until that, you know, until college. Uh, but you had a good education. So maybe you did have the training to spot these subtexts. This, I don't know if it was about the subtext and I have, I think it was about Fanny Price. And, um, mm. and like so, said, uh, you like the underdog that she said this. The underdog and the person with a depth of, with a strong, correct and unassailable moral code oppressed by the world. I mean, that was a thing that just for whatever reason, maybe from my high school years, which were kind of miserable, um, you know, the person who was neglected, I mean, it just spoke to me, this whole world moving around in a cynical and nasty way. And yet there's a moral center to yeah. that world, which was Fanny Price. So it wasn't even, it was not a literary reading where I was looking at themes and context. It was Fanny Price, and who is, a, uh, as you know, is of such huge controversy in the Jane Austen world because there are so many uh, self-proclaimed Janeites who hate Fanny Price. Uh, to me, Fanny Price is the, is the true center of Jane Austen, which is why I, I found the, the film dis both interesting and disturbing because mm -hmm. Patricia Rosema puts a kind of melds Jane Austen and Fanny Price together, which I think actually weakens Fanny Price. But I do believe that the role of Fanny Price in the world, and especially in her world, is um, it's a truth about the social world. And it grabbed me and the, the brilliance of how it ground on and the, and the unbelievable moment when she turns down Henry Crawford. I always bring it up in class and I ask my students, should she have accepted Henry Crawford? And the ones who read it correctly but glibly always say, of course not. The ones who are very cynical say, of course she should. The real answer is, I don't know, because 
that actually is the the answer that the narrator <laughs> provides to some extent. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just thought it captured a truth about the choices we have to make in the world and the possibility of choosing good, not as an obvious choice and not as a glibly self-justifying choice, but as a choice that resonates as truth within one's own moral complexity. I, I, agree with everything you're saying about Fanny Price. I think it's funny that people do see her as mousy. Um, when I was 22, I was reading Manchil, you know, I was bought into the patriarchy. It's kind of sad, but I just was not questioning it. At 32, I read Mansfield Park and was like, whoa, <laughs> she, she destroys this world around her. Really, like Austin's very subtly doing this. She is ascendant. And you talk about Henry Crawford, she's superior. Like you can't read that without thinking this 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 child, this female child of the species is uh, superior to everyone. What are you gonna do with that, people? What are you going to do with that? Not even the parsonage and Edmund and not even the grand estate of Mansfield Park is worthy of this child. So take that, people. And I, I don't know if people really see it that way. You say it's still a little controversial, but you you saw this when you're 22. Well, <laughs> I think that's probably Austin, a weakness in my well, psychology. No because, no, because Austin was showing you. Austin was showing you, but we just, I, I feel like there's still so much to unpack with Austin at, with every new generation. She has something for us. And she shows it to you both without humiliating her and without glorifying her. So the, as you were talking so eloquently, what came to my mind, another woman author of the 19th century, George Eliot and Middlemarch and Dorothea Brooke. Yeah. And Dorothea Brooke is both humiliated and glorified. Yeah. You are right. She tear, Fanny Price tears everything down. The humiliations are are humiliations from society, not from the writer. I mean, Dorothea Brooke is somewhat humiliated by George Eliot. Jane Austen never humiliates Fanny Price, mm-hmm. even if Mrs. Norris is there brutalizing her. But she doesn't glorify her either. Fanny Price comes back in, and in some ways you could say she assimilates herself to the patriarchy. She marries her cousin, the bossy uh, Edmund, who never, I don't even think, even fully a hundred percent appreciates her, but maybe that's just no, me. I, I think Fanny. No. I think I would have been better for Fanny Price than Edmund was. You, but, you um, would have George, and no, Austin <laughs> does not want us to love Edmund. You know that's clear. She does not love Edmund. I I feel like I mean we're giving our opinions here, so people can disagree. Yes, absolutely. Please let us but, know, people, if you disagree. But yeah, but I love what you're saying, George. That Austin is not humiliating, and in fact. Uh, it's not really Fanny tearing things down, right? It, Fanny is not doing that. Austin is doing that. And she. the world is humiliating. The world is full of humiliations, insults, injuries. And here's how you stand. Here's how you stand in this. And you point out something in your writing that I want to get to, too, which is that there's imagination. This is, a, in some ways, a fantasy of what can happen. This is revisioning a world where a, a young woman, a young person who identifies as female, a young person who identifies as however you identify, whatever your race, color, uh, 
sexuality, gender, you just as a human, you can stand and you can, this is how you might survive and maybe even be ascendant, even though it's not necessarily going to happen in real life. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly well put. Well, okay. So Mansfield Park, um, the next novel Austin wrote, I believe, right, was Emma. How did she... Yep. How did she go from Fanny Price to this heroine that has so little to vex her? When you look at Mansfield Park, which is certainly an experiment in light of Pride and Prejudice and Sensibility, and a novelist who is a genius and who is shaping the form and breaking the form at the same time that she's inhabiting it, yeah. what would, in a way, it's the right next experiment you take somebody who's very much unlike Fanny Price. Mm -hmm. She's wealthy. She's beautiful. She's admired. She never makes social mistakes, really. She is the queen of the world as opposed to Cinderella. Yes. So it's um, you, you. Fanny Price is Cinderella. Emma ain't Cinderella. <laughs> Emma's one of the wicked sisters she or is. the really obnoxious she sisters. Is. And yet and yet the brilliant, and, and this is the line, she said, I'm going to take a heroine nobody but myself mm -hmm. will much like. Uh, that's something an artist would do. It's, mm -hmm. it's a kind of, in, it's an intellectual game, but unlike many, what I would say, uh, the way postmodern novels sometimes read experiments without a heart, it's an experiment in which life overwhelms whatever kind of intellectual experiment may have given rise to trying to write about an entirely different character because there is just as much life in Emma as there is in Mansfield Park. And there is in, in its own way, just as much integrity in the character of Emma as there is in the character of Fanny Price. It's interesting because she's taking us on this roller coaster ride. So she's like, here I showed you the poor mousy Cinderella who becomes ascendant, how does that happen? Now I'm going to show you somebody who you say, George, the queen, she's at the top, but she also is going to change and evolve. And in both cases, she's focusing on what matters to her, which is character and kindness and how to exist in the world. But it's to be a contributor, a good citizen, a kind person. How do you, how do you feel about that, that aspect of this that she's got someone on the bottom, then she's got a female character that's already at the top, but yet what are the themes that remain the same in, in that? Well, I think you actually just put it in a way that crystallizes something for me uh, and it's that I have become much more self-conscious about as feeling as important in life is that kindness is at the core. And so that's not something that I wrote about in the introduction that you very kindly uh, mentioned to the Norton Critical Edition, but it is something that is absolutely true. And I point out to students, you know, she does what she's supposed to do. She visits the poor. She's charitable to the poor. And that's a kind of uh, structural kindness that, and she doesn't do it cynically. So there is a goodness to her character that gets expressed in kindness. Of course, as we know, uh, She's not always kind to some of the people that are closest to her, including Miss Bates, mm -hmm. including Jane Fairfax. Mm -hmm. And some people would read the novel as uh, 
let me if if I can go back, one of the prevalent readings of Emma continues to be that Emma is I was talking about Dorothea Brooke a second ago, but that Emma is humiliated into kindness. Mm. The uh, the scene on Box Hill where she is so cruel to Miss Bates and so out of touch with her surroundings. Because one thing about Emma is that she is unbelievably, the brilliance of the character is she is unbelievably perceptive about the world around her mm-hmm. at the same time that she doesn't put all the clues together. So she's she's this detective who's taken in all the evidence and then she can't quite put it together to understand what's going on. Like <laughs> Mr. Elton in the, the, trying to rape her in the carriage, what? When anybody who had been reading it, anybody in Emma's position should have been able to see exactly what was happening. But that's very different from Box Hill where she's not even perceptive. She's just in this solipsistic Mm. world of herself, like in sense perception with Frank. And she is truly cruel. But at the same time, that is a crucial moment in which she certainly sees the world more clearly and is able to correlate her kindness, as you put it, and I agree with you, her kindness is correlated with her role in the social, uh, sort of in the social hierarchy and her own personal satisfaction in romance. And it doesn't stamp out her imagination. Her imagination is still there. And that's something, you know, the older reading is she was this imaginative ditz and now she lives in the real world. No, she's a brilliantly imaginative person who doesn't have a job where she can, can do anything with it. Um, and I love Mr. Knightley, but Emma, Emma wins the novel. Yes. And she wins the novel not because she makes some sort of, whether it's a cynical or a moral change from who she was to who she will be as Mr. George Knightley, it's because she has reshaped the world uncomfortably because we're still in patriarchal early 19th century England, but she shaped a world in which she can continue to love, be kind, have a lot of nice things, be admired by other people, which she certainly loves to do, and do good in the world. talking with Professor George Justice, the editor of the Norton Critical Edition of Jane Austen's novel, Emma. And if we're talking about Emma, we need to start talking about Knightley. Coming up, George Justice explores with me how Austen often chooses older, more powerful heroes like Knightley to speak her own truths. We also explore the dynamics of power between Knightley and Emma. Dr. Justice says maybe that power dynamic is not what you think. Also in this next segment, we divide Austin heroes into two categories, worthy and unworthy. That was uh, George Justice's idea, and it was a lot of fun. So speaking of Knightley, you love Knightley. You say something in your intro. Emma is being forced to recalibrate the cultural and the social hierarchy. She thinks she knows the social hierarchy. She has that classic definition of privilege where it's not something she has to think about. She's just at the top of it. But she 
in fact is wrong about it and then and then it turns out you point this out but she's recalibrating but that recalibration is coming every single time from challenges from nightly how does that how does a romance and marriage and all of this fit into this recalibration and this what is it like also george reading this as a as a person identifying as a man reading that hmm mr nightly so let me backtrack a little bit into how you've set this up in a very interesting, complicated way. Um, it is Austin who has given Knightley those characteristics and that genuine insight mm-hmm. into the world. Mr. Knightley really does understand and he's older. I mean, grosses my students out how significantly older than <laughs> yes. Emma, Mr. Knightley is. Um and he's kind to her and he's loved her since that's also grosses out the students. Um, yeah, for some reason, uh, but, Austin likes that older, very older, powerful guy to be the one just kind of showing us the way. I mean, but she gives, she gives that but, power and who knows why she does that. But go but ahead. It's not just giving him the power. It's also, I do believe he is speaking for her. He is speaking correctly. Mm-hmm. He is speaking. Uh, a brilliant uh, writer, uh, critic named Sarah Raff wrote a wonderful essay that talks about Emma and Mr. Knightley and Emma's relationship in the context of the letters of advice that Jane Austen is writing to her niece, mm-hmm. who's trying to decide whom to marry. And there is a bullying authoritative voice mm. and approach to her niece yes that that mirrors a little bit of this relationship it's a she's giving nightly her viewpoints because people will listen to nightly <laughs> people will listen to nightly and not necessarily listen to someone else and maybe in a romantic relationship yeah this is utter speculation <laughs> she'd be more the nightly character and so you yes. know we do have these Absolutely. interesting intersections of gender power and attraction that go on because i love that we don't know how jane austen identified 100 percent. we have no idea she may have identified with knightley she might have been in love with emma she might (laughs) have who knows i think that's wonderful and that's a whole other aspect we could dive into which is the lgbtqi um, absolutely critical approaches and queer theory approaches to austen really the question we were discussing, sorry, is how it all ends up in the hands of Knightley, but also like how does she Ah, channel all of this into romance? Like that. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that is because it is romantic. And I know there are some against the grain readers who don't find the love between Emma and Mr. Knightley plausible. I am not one of them. I find the scene, and it's a scene in which, despite the fact that Mr. Knightley has just dressed her down and made her weep, the narrative is constructed so that Emma is allowed in private to have her moment of internal revelation that no one but she must marry Mr. Knightley. And then she also finally, instead of being clueless, she figures out that he likes her so in that it is a wonderful uh, to me it's a wonderful scene when he uh he starts you know 
Emma, can I talk to you? And she's a little nervous because she doesn't 100% know. But as the conversation gets going, she knows exactly what's coming. And so the, the power is turned. Emma actually knows before, knows that Mr. Knightley is going to propose to her and that she will say yes before Mr. Knightley understands it. And so he's like mortified, I shouldn't go on. And she's like, no, 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 go ahead and go on. Uh, and it's an interesting power dynamic. And I think that, um, and I'm certainly not uh, the person um, who's seen this first or seen it best in Claudia Johnson's writing about Emma and Mr. Knightley. And mm -hmm. Mr. Knightley as a character who is very masculine, and yet he's a kind of new man because he is truly emotionally sensitive to Emma. Yeah. Uh, what is interesting in the romance is that power is so completely built into the sexual energy between Mr. Knightley and Emma. He was a teenager looking at a little girl. And as they grew up, he'd kind of mock her and tease her. And she'd flirt with him totally unafraid of this older guy, really. I mean, she was herself, who really has the power there. And that what the that last scene in the context of Box Hill, where he really has put the, you know, put his hand down. If you reread the novel from the beginning, Mr. Knightley doesn't have really any power over her. He has her total respect but she has the power of doing what she wants. And that really is what uh, comes through at the end, that this powerful romance, which I think it is, is not a kind of dominant submission thing. It is, it is really a romance of two morally and intellectually equal people they are very masculine and very feminine. And it's interesting if you get into the uh, GLBTQ thing, because there is a long history of people seeing Emma not as being a woman, but we, we shouldn't forget that it's very clear that her form, and Jan Fergus points this out uh, really beautifully in an essay that I, I put at the back of uh, my Norton Critical Edition. Yes. We linger over the feminine beautiful form of Emma, but her mind mm -hmm. is powerful intellectually, even as it is, as you pointed out earlier in this conversation, even as it's kind. She is a kind, intellectually brilliant person who answers to nobody. So where you mm -hmm. might see it as she makes all these lists of books that she hasn't read in Australia, she says she makes these beautiful lists and then she never reads them. That shows her power. She has the intellectual power to know what she should do. And she has the intellectual power and the judgment to say, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Emma's happy to live within the structures, the class structures, the social structures, the architectural structures of her society. But she kind of scoffs at any structures that would restrain her moral and intellectual worth. And I kind of inhabited those structures. Well, it's almost like she doesn't even notice those structures. <laughs> She's like clueless in uh, some interesting ways. Yes, but I, but I, I don't think it's I, clueless involved. I mean, she is clueless about so many things, 
but about the lists and about playing the piano and about being an artist. And you know, Mr. Elton's saying, oh, how wonderful, Emma. This is so beautiful. <laughs> and she's like, no, it isn't. Yeah. And she's, she's clear-sighted yes. and not insecure. She's totally non-insecure. It's kind of amazing. Well, it's interesting, too. Like, you're describing her power. It's true. Like you say, Austin's not humiliating these characters. With Emma, she's doing the opposite. She's showing someone who is not only superior, but she's artificially superior. Like, Emma's so powerful, she can be as wrong as the Eltons and the, you know, all of the wrong patriarchal figures. Emma's similarly right. wrong and artificially propped up, just like they are. But she has this transformation that comes from this this man and it's it is very romantic i agree and i feel like it's really really interesting and important and fun for sure to unpack like why is this not only romantic but the foundation of so many romances i guess emma's the smartest most intelligent maybe not the most insightful obviously person but she it's it's i suppose attractive that there's someone who's as smart as she is and maybe even hasn't figured it out hasn't figured out a little more i feel like maybe austin wanted someone man woman person to be as smart as she was that's a hard way to go through the world when marriage is your option it's that is that's sad yes and it's very true let's let's go through from the beginning and i'm just going to ask you do you think mr Darcy is worthy of Elizabeth Bennett. Yes, I believe that uh, it seems to me like Darcy and Elizabeth Bennett make each other worthy of each other. It seems to me like both characters, you want to just focus on Darcy and Elizabeth for a minute? Just them? Yeah, yeah, just first, yeah. I mean... I'm going to go through the whole list. Externally, he's worthy right? He's a ticket. Internally, uh, not so much, but become he transforms. They make each other better. I feel like they make each other better. And I feel like Austin is showing us that marriage, if you're going to get married, make sure it's somebody who will make you better and not make you worse. And she's full of examples of people who make each other worse. The Crofts, Admiral and Mrs. Croft make each other better. Yes. And they're an aged Are couple. Are they the only ones? Um, they probably are. I I want to go through the main because I think this this is yes. something I haven't thought of. We said we already said that Edmund really isn't worthy of Fanny, mm -hmm. but yeah. Darcy is worthy of Elizabeth. Yes. Would you say that uh, Edward is worthy of Eleanor? Almost. He has potential. That that little engagement on the side is extremely <sighs> disappointing. Uh, but he needs to speak up. He needs to be, he needs to grow a spine, but he has potential. Maybe with Eleanor's extremely strong spine, those two will be all right. What do you think? I don't think he's worthy of her, but mm. he's whom she chose mm. and he's not terrible. That's like Edmund. Mm. It's, that's who, um, uh, Fanny wanted, and he's not terrible. Mm -hmm. I'd say the same thing about Henry Tilney, mm -hmm. although Catherine yes. Moreland's not as fully and developed a character, mm -hmm. but he's he's not a bad guy. But there's there's if you take Mr. Darcy 
and you take Captain Wentworth and you、mm. take Mr. Knightley. Those are characters who embody, you know, as I said, Claudia Johnson talks about it. These new men who are masculine and powerful, and yet have a sensitive intelligence to them as well, and respect and value deeply the women that they're with. I mean,、uh, I so I do see a distinction there, and I, I don't. I'm I'm not saying that I. Know what to do with that. I'm just.、Uh, this conversation has made me want to think about that and why、um, the last two, thinking about、uh, persuasion and Emma, the last two of those powerful men、uh, are truly worthy.、Mm-hmm. Uh, I think,、um, and you know, of course, I think the moment at the end of、uh, that letter. In、yeah. persuasion is one of the most intense things, but I know a colleague who thinks it's camp, that it's purposely overdone. I don't believe that at all. I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever written, read in、uh, the English language. It's so beautiful. I love your categorizing all these these leading men, who's worthy, who's not. It's really interesting. You okay? I had to pick up the Norton. <laughs> you、oh. mentioned Claudia Johnson. Here's a here's what she says. She says Knightley is a fantastically wishful creation of benign authority. That's beautiful. In whom the benefits and attractions of power are preserved, and the abuses and encroachments expelled. So, what do you think is going on with that? As you categorize the leading men, that's Claudia Johnson's Knightley, wrapped、and、up with a, authority and power. And. Because authority and power are inherently not wrong things in these books, and that has to do. I, I always, when I'm teaching classes, I bring it back to the authority and the power of the narrator, who is the actual authority and power in all of these novels. Here, here,、um, and and I think that's partly why the turn from an epistolary novel. Where, you know, it's harder to wield that to increasingly、um, intense narrative strategies that that express their authority often by merging the voice through free and direct discourse with the voice of the main character. So it is such a trick to have. The most fully controlling and authoritative and benign narrators, who efface themselves and and express their authority and power almost through their own self-effacement. Let me, George, read your own writing back to you because this is so amazing and it just kind of sums up everything that we said. And I have this kind of as our last question. Um, you write、uh, almost twenty years ago in、uh, the in your introduction to the Norton Critical Edition. Here's here's what you wrote: Reading Emma requires interaction. We impose meaning on the text just as the text pushes its various meanings onto us. Trying to understand Emma with its interplay of psychological realism and moral vision is like trying to understand ourselves and the world. We must be both introspective and exceedingly observant of what lies around us. Complete success eludes us. We must reread, 
reflect, and change our minds, and perhaps become better people for having done so. I almost cried when I read that. That's very kind. I can't believe I wrote that. It does sound pretty good. It sums up our conversation, right? (laughs) Absolutely, it does. My question for you with that is, do you still think that 20 years, almost 20 years later? Yeah, and that's an interesting thing. I do. And it's an interesting thing. And it's humbling about teaching. And it's a wonderful thing about teaching. I do, like any teacher, when I teach a novel, a lot of times, like I do with Emma, I have go-to points, I have shticks, I have different scenes I like to focus on. And typically, I've gotten hardened readings about that. So I'm you know, leading, I like to talk about the carriage scene, for example, and I do have a strong reading and Mr. Elton is basically raping Emma. And I want students to see hmm. the actual violence hmm. that is in that scene. It isn't this just, uh, it's not just this sloppy, silly guy who is physically menacing in that space and in the way that he approaches. But then students will say, well, I read it in this way. And any good teacher has to be able to say, wow, I hadn't thought about that. Just as you're focusing on just your use of the word kindness and and putting that deeply into our conversation about Emma, I had not, I had not articulated it to myself in that way before. That's Mm -hmm. new to me. And I can tell you, I'm going to be thinking about that for months to come. So I do believe that every time I read this book, it's a new book to me. Emma is a book that, and that's just a factual thing. She's, she's constructed the book so carefully that it's impossible to understand even what's happening 20 times through the book for me. And then when you add the increased complexity of how human beings interact with each other and how they're fixed the fixed and unfixed parts of their personality come into this complicated matrix of interaction yeah it's a new book every time and it's a new book that um may is morally compelling because it tells us to look at everything anew was Dr. George Justice, editor of the Norton Critical Edition of Emma. He's working on a short biography, by the way, of Jane Austen for Reaction Books Critical Lives series. He also works through Dever Justice LLC with the Chronicle of Higher Education and the nonprofit think tank Ithaca SNR on issues in higher education leadership. Thanks for joining us. Austin Connection. Do you have further thoughts on Emma and romance and love and power in Jane Austen? Let us know your thoughts. AustinConnection.substack.com or find us on Twitter at AustinConnect or on Instagram at AustinConnection. Thanks for joining the conversation here at the Austin Connection.